We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Riti Saraf. She is the founder of K20 Educators, the next generation of social learning for educators. Riti has served as teacher, dean, and director in public, private, and charter schools, both locally and internationally across K-12 and higher education. She founded K-20 Educator to connect educators from around the world in order to realize their collective brilliance. K-20 aims to be a metaverse for educators, a virtual networking, learning, and career hub that will change the way the education industry operates. She is also co-founder of Ed3DAO, the first decentralized autonomous organization for educators, by educators, owned by educators. As a nonprofit, their mission is to catalyze innovation and in education at scale using Web3. Welcome, Freedy. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to learn more about Web3 and talk about the implications for the future of education, utilizing the changes in the web and the new emerging tech that's coming out. So maybe we can start there. I've heard the term Web3, and in honesty, I'm coming at this from a place of curiosity myself because it's not something I have a ton of knowledge in. So can you give a little bit of background or explanation of Web3 and the role that you're seeing at play in education currently? Sure thing. That is a very loaded question. So we'll, we'll get started with what is Web3, and then we'll talk about the role. So Web3 is the evolution of the web. And so uh, if you... Think back to when the internet was started and then when the web was invented. So the web was invented in 1989 by Tim Berners-Lee. Basically, the purpose of the web was to be able to browse the content that was available on the internet. 
And uh, that version was web one. And so what you could do on the web at that point was all you could do was read, right? All you could do was consume the content that was on the web because there weren't a lot of people out there that could code and there weren't easy systems to be able to easily code on the web. And so there was, um, you know, all these static websites, informational websites, and you could sort of consume the, the content as a sort of, you know, general public. Then Web 2 emerged when social media emerged. And what social media did was it allowed you to blog, to post, to send messages to each other, to connect with each other without being a coder. And so now you had people creating websites of their own. You had people creating blogs of their own. You had people messaging each other. You had people connecting all over the world on the internet without knowing how to code. And so we call Web 2.0 read and write. Web 3.0 is a further evolution of that. And Web 3.0, the difference between Web 2 and Web 3 is in Web 3, you can do all the things you can do in Web 2, which is you can contribute to the web, you can build more things. There's a lot of no-code solutions out there now. The biggest difference is now the web is starting to focus on the decentralization of data. So in Web 2, if you notice, all of the things that were available to you were mostly free, right? So Google was free, uh, email was free, you know, searching was free, but they were collecting your data. And so it wasn't really free. The The cost of it was your data. And so big companies um, monopolized your data and basically were sort of forwarding all of this information about you. And that's what they used to then serve you ads. And that's how they were able to sort of like generate revenue in order to update all the apps that you got for free. It made sense on a business level. It made sense um, in terms of consumer level. Also, our credit cards were not that conducive or we weren't comfortable putting them online because it was sort of an unknown territory in the 80s and the 90s. But what's changed now is because of something called blockchain, which is the idea of storing your information or storing data in a decentralized way. So not one entity owning the information that you put on the web, but many different entities helping you own your own data. There is this uh, movement in Web3 where you can contribute to the web, you can engage with the web, you can do all the things, but you no longer have to use your data as the way to access these apps. Your data can be owned by you. So that's really the difference between Web1, Web2, Web3. And so what Web3 is moving towards is basically everything that you know you see on the web is Web3 because it's just the evolution of it. But it's really moving towards that decentralization of data. So what do you see as implications or emerging ideas for the future of education? Yes. So uh, there are a few different concepts that have emerged in Web3 that have dominated the industry, the space. And some of those ideas include putting things on blockchain. So having your data belong on a decentralized server. And the way that that translates to education is credentialing. So right now we have our credentials, our transcripts, our badges, you know, the certificates that we get. They belong with the institution that gives us the credential. So if I get my transcript from a high school, the high school owns it. I have to call them. I have to order it. I have to pay them a fee. Then if I get a transcript from college, I would again have to call the bursar. If I want to transfer any of my credits, if I want to transfer any of my credentials from one institution to the next, I have to call each institution. 
So what blockchain allows us to do is it allows us to take those credentials and put them in a wallet that belongs to us. And it turns those credentials into digital credentials. And so in the future, if I get a credential from Yale, let's say I take a class on happiness from Yale and I get a certificate on that, then instead of Yale owning it, Yale represents the verifier, but I own that credential and I can access it anytime and give it to whomever I want and let whomever I want see it. So that changes the way that credentials are handled um, in education and allows us to sort of own our data there. The implications of that are, number one, it's obviously convenient because we we own our own data and we can sort of like transfer them. Imagine like your, your medical records being owned by you. Imagine your educational records being owned by you, your employment records being owned by you and them not being owned by big companies, right? So it's just a huge amount of convenience. And you can sort of like send them to whomever you want. You can make them visible to whomever you want, invisible to whomever you want, things like that. But then the bigger implication is the decentralization of learning. So right now, um, if I want to get a degree, I would have to go to an institution, a college, university to get my degree. But the implication of decentralized credentials or credentials being on blockchain is that perhaps there is a world out there where I can choose what my degree is and get it verified by the different institutions and create my own degree program that lives with me. So I can say, I want to take a class at Harvard. I want to take a class at this community college. I want to take a class at Yale. I want to take a class with this tutor. And all of that culminates into one degree that I've created for myself, verified by each of these institutions, but owned by me. So that's a bigger implication of these decentralized learning systems, which is you can decentralize your entire uh, learning trajectory and learning career. And you can also take advantage of global learning. You don't have to do it just in your city. You can take advantage of micro-schooling where you can do these things on a smaller level instead of sort of larger university. So that's the first thing. The second sort of part of the Web3 ecosystem is something called a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization. Basically, a DAO is like a co-op uh, where, you know, the vote is democratized for how the decisions are made. But the difference between a DAO and a co-op is that in a DAO, all of your transactions fiscally and all of your transaction in terms of voting also live on blockchain. And what that does is it eliminates the intermediary for who's actually making the decision. So let's say we want to make a decision um, and vote on how educators get grants within our DAO. Instead of us collecting the votes and then there being a committee that makes the final decision, as soon as the votes are collected, the blockchain executes the decision and the decision is made. There's no intermediary actually like vetting and adding up the things. So there, there's no corruption that can be possible in a DAO. And everything in a DAO is transparent. So you can actually see where the money's going, who it's going to, how it's going to them, all that kind of stuff. And so the implication for education there is DAOs can be really great models for schools and universities. Because today, schools and universities you know, it's really the administrative staff that makes the, the decisions. But imagine if the students, the parents, the teachers, the admin staff, everyone had a stake in the school and actually were able to make democratized decisions about what the curriculum was, what the after-school programming were, what teachers get paid, how the budget gets allocated, all that kind of stuff. And then third, um, you know, major implication in education under Web3 is the concept of a metaverse. So Metaverse, as you've probably heard, is this AR, VR environment currently 
that allows you to engage uh, with people all over the world, but in an avatar-based form. The future of the metaverse is not just that. The future of the metaverse is basically encompassing everything you can do in the real world. You can do online, but we're not there yet. So currently, metaverse environments really allow for people to build relationships with each other, where it's not just sort of like a floating head on a screen, but it's actually allowing people to have agency, walk around, have spontaneous conversations. And the implications on education on that are huge because it allows you to emulate a real life environment online. So I'll I'll stop there because I know I've been talking for quite a bit. Yeah, I have so many thoughts. My first is kind of around where you started and where you ended talking about, you know, higher education and being able to have our own credentials, which on one side sounds great. And I'm going to play a little devil's advocate, I think, because it sounds amazing to be able to take a class at Yale and at Harvard and at Stanford. And of course, you can't be at Harvard at 10 a.m. and Stanford at 1 p.m. and back to Yale for a 3 p.m. class. So you're doing everything online. And for some people, that works great. But I also... I'm really curious about your thoughts on how we still maintain human connection and talking about the metaverse and like, yes, we can build relationships there, but it's not us. We're not looking at another human. We're not seeing another person's expressions. We're not seeing their eyes well up with tears, even if they don't start to cry and their voice doesn't waver. Like these are cues that we get when we see another human that we can't get when we're not a floating head, but even a walking avatar in the metaverse. And the dystopian in me goes to Ready Player One and (laughs) how far that could go when everybody's online and nobody's in the real world. But the educator in me, you know, I have an elementary school and one of the real things we've seen definitely through the pandemic is that kids need to learn around humans. And so how do we balance this difference of having all these new possibilities for college and for education and for the metaverse and still really place a large importance on our own humanity and human connection, like actually with another person who's not in a screen. And I I understand the irony of this as I'm talking to you through a screen, but but I think that's where Like the more that I see and the more cool things they are. And I saw a bunch on your website where people were doing contests and creating things in Gathertown and creating ways that students could learn their math facts or multiplication fluency or like it's Lunar New Year. So signs of the Chinese Zodiac table, right? All of these ways gamified online. But in some ways, it feels like we're using super cool tech to teach the same things. So I guess my question is going in two directions here. One is how do we still really bring in the importance of human connection? And the other, I think, is how do we use the tech to really do something new and different and not teach the same material in new ways? Yeah, those are great questions. And I think um, very valid concerns that I think everybody has. I'll, I'll answer your two questions in three ways. So my personal belief is that technology should never replace human connection. Human relationships and being physical with people and being physically in in person with people is and should be irreplaceable. And the thing that we need to teach our kids is not that you should use technology to replace your relationships. We should teach people that you should use technology to supplement what you can do in person or what you can't do in person, rather. So 
There's this um, study that came out of Stanford where they talk about when educators should really use metaverse environments or virtual spaces. And I completely agree with um, their, their sort of thesis here, which is you should not be relying on metaverse environments or technology if you don't have to, right? But the times that you can and the times that it really matters is they created this acronym called DICE. And they said, if you want your kids to experience something that is dangerous in the real world, do it online. So that's the first D. The I in DICE is if you want your students to experience something impossible in the real world. So like diving into the human body, Miss Frizzle style, do it online. C is counterproductive. So if you want students to experience what it might be like to wipe out a certain species off the planet, what impact that would have on the ecosystem, maybe you wipe out all the fungus on the planet, what would happen to the ecosystem? That is counterproductive to the world. So don't do that in the real world. Do it in a metaverse environment. And then the E is if it's too expensive in real life. So if you want to take your kids to Italy, but you cannot afford that, then doing it in a metaverse environment is a really good alternative. Rather than just showing them pictures, maps, and things like that, actually immersing them as an avatar. So the way that I talk about these things and the way that I look at them is these new technologies are excellent supplements and can greatly advance learning, but they are not to be replacing your in-person human connections. And that's why I think the future of learning is hybrid. I don't think it's remote. I think it is partly in person and partly online. You just mentioned earlier that, you know, the fact that you're sort of like talking to me online right now, like you found me on a social media app and we are connecting, even though you're in California, I'm in New York. And you and I would have probably never met otherwise, right? Maybe we would have, but likely not. And so the fact that you and I get to take advantage of this is huge. But this doesn't mean that for the rest of the day today, I'm not going to have in-person relationships with the people that I do know that are around me, right? So it's about balancing the opportunity that we have here with global connections, enhanced realities, things that we wouldn't be able to do in real life ever with actually balancing what we can do. So that's the first answer. So tell me again what your second question was, just to remind me. Was the higher education and ramifications for certifications. And as you were talking through that answer, I actually thought of that because the way that then you could attend one university, like maybe I'm a student at, you know, I'm in California. So maybe I'm a student at Cal Poly and that's where I go and that's where I live. And I'm in the dorm there and I'm having my college experience there but maybe I'm dis- able to design my own degree and I'm still, you know, I'm taking maybe the bulk of my classes or even half of my classes there in person, but able to take classes at Yale or Harvard. And this is one of the things that outlier.org is doing is bringing all of those to you and creating a place where you can take all of those classes from the best professors around the country. And so I guess, yeah, part of my thought and my fear and my devil's advocacy was, you know, college students suddenly being in their bedrooms at home and not getting out and not having that experience and not having that social growth that's so important during that period of time. But as you were talking, I can see how that could morph and be hybrid and not an all or nothing. I I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, when we think back to our college experience, I don't think most people think back to what they studied or what they learned. They always talk about their friends and the parties and the social experiences that they had, right? 
And that is very valid. And that's really why people go to college. They go to college to build their lifelong friendships, to build networks, to build relationships, all that kind of stuff, and to, to discover who they are, right? Because they're for the first time on their own, all that kind of stuff. None of that can be replaced, right? You don't want to create a world where kids are living at home in their basement and learning online and then working online and never leaving their house. <laughs> that is not a healthy world that feels very dystopian. But being able to go to a, an institution, even if you're in fourth grade, right? Being able to go to a school that is a place of social learning, where you can go to make friends, where you can go to build relationships, where you can have a guidance from a teacher who like helps you curate your pathway and then taking some of those classes in that school, but then taking some classes online. And maybe, you know, I um, want to learn Mandarin. And instead of learning Mandarin from somebody who is in my school, maybe I actually take an immersive Mandarin class where I'm an avatar walking around in a Mandarin world with other people who are in China, right? Who are seeking to learn English, you know? So there's a lot of different ways you can configure this. But I think the key is, and this sort of alludes back to your question, the key is really having that hybrid world and taking the most advantage of your in-person experience and the most advantage of online experiences and not being afraid to balance those two things. Because I think from what I've seen with education is we're so afraid that we're going to go off on one of the two extremes that there are some teachers who don't use a computer at all in the classroom or don't use any technology in the classroom. And there are some teachers who only use technology in the classroom and are sort of like not, you know, doing as much social learning as they can. So like we, we have to find that balance and, and that balance is really what I see as the future of education. As you were talking, I was picturing college as like relationship hubs. Like it's not yeah. necessarily a college that you go to for a degree anymore, but it's a relationship space for, I don't know, 18 to 22 year olds, <laughs> right? Where yeah. they, it's like it becomes this intermediate how do you learn to be an adult space between yes. home and the real world, which is what college is, right? Yeah. And then to add to that, we have been creating these superficial structures for students since the industrial era, right? We've been creating this one-size-fits-all classrooms where we force students to learn in one way. But what we've learned from, I think, the pandemic and even earlier than that is when kids are able to curate developmentally appropriate and personalized learning pathways, which I think is similar to what you're sort of exploring at your school, um, there, there's so much more success and, and stickiness and retention of content. And they're able to sort of like build on their interests and are actually able to learn more than they could if they're just learning something that was sort of standardized for them. So to be able to curate pathways for students individually is, I think, where we should head as as a world because it'll allow us to take more advantage of the knowledge that's out there because there's so much content and knowledge out there, right? Like there's the internet and and the world is just like teeming with so much information. And we're often just sort of stuck in a classroom worth of information rather than a world worth of information. Yeah. And then that brings on the new challenge of there's a world worth of information and how do we teach students to sift through it and critically think about it right. and have conscious, respectful debate about what they're finding yes. or what they're learning or the way things are written about in one country versus the way another country writes about the exact same happening or event. That's so well said. 
what you just said is like the key, right? Like if we can teach kids to do that, if that's the thing that we're teaching in schools versus having them memorize the states, right? They can take that knowledge, that critical thinking, those competencies, and then apply that to any type of information that's out there. Because if they need to know about the states, they can Google that, right? But if they need to go into a situation and critically think about how they're going to transfer their knowledge into that situation, like that's the thing that we need to teach students. Yeah, that suddenly makes education really fun and exciting again. Right. And I I would hope for educators that that makes it really fun and exciting again, too, because then you're not walking into a classroom with a curated curriculum that's fully scripted that honestly anybody could deliver. Yeah, it's harder. Oh, it's way harder. But I mean, I hope that's why most educators go to school is because they want to make a difference and they want to teach the students the things that are really going to matter and impact their lives. And so I think that was a beautiful example of how you pull together the web and in-person and educators and really create something for the future. So one of the things that I look at or that I see, I feel like I see a lot, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, was using ed tech tools to kind of teach the same things in new ways. So kids get excited because it's on a screen, but they're really just learning their math facts, which we can learn, you know, as a group, we can learn on flashcards. We've been teaching these for, you know, to your point, since the industrial age. And so some of it, it's teaching the same thing in new ways. And a lot of times it feels like it's gamifying low levels of knowledge. So just basic fluency or just can I name the 12 zodiac signs uh, to use an example I used earlier or parts of speech? You know, can you name what part of speech this word is quickly or learning sight words? And so it's really low levels of knowledge that, yes, are important and we need those to build on. But how can we use those gamified tools to really dig deeper into the knowledge? One thing is, you know, as you said, those foundational pieces of knowledge are important, right? We, we do need to teach those and gamifying them just makes them more palatable to students. We definitely should make better use of technology and it shouldn't just be sort of, you know, doing the same things you could do uh, because then what's the point of it? So the way that I've seen technology be used or I've seen like great examples are really where you can enhance your learning in a way that you couldn't do in real life. So I talked about DICE earlier. So, you know, uh, using metaverse environments to really enhance the learning. But then it's also about like human connection. So like if I can use technology to connect my students to an experience or a person that they would never meet in my classroom, I think that's really a huge opportunity. And then similarly, if I can get my student to experience a situation or a simulation that they would never experience in the classroom online or in a virtual environment. I think that's also another opportunity. So an example of that is if I want my students to understand what it would be like if they were in an emergency situation where they had to give somebody the um, CPR or something like that. The actual logistics of it, the actual mechanism of giving someone CPR is something you can teach in real life. But to be able to simulate the fear, the anxiety, the fast-paced situation of all those things that are happening, where it's this like dangerous situation that has happened, like you can't really simulate that in real life, but it is possible to simulate that in a gamified environment. That's really what video games do, right? I think one of the reasons kids love video games is because they get completely immersed in them and they get that sense of fear. They get that sense of anxiety when they're like moving their avatar around. 
And so to be able to do something like that in, in that world and sort of like help them evolve emotionally and psychologically, I think is also really powerful. That's just one example that sort of comes off the top of my head, maybe not the best example, but there are many more examples like that. Well, I'd love to shift gears and ask your opinion about one of the controversial things that has come out of the web in the past couple of weeks. I'm kind of going off on a, a little different direction here. But if you have an opinion with all of the controversy that's currently happening around education and New York City public schools banning access to the AI and what that looks like, hopefully for a, a positive view or positive spin of the future of education. Yeah, um, I have lots of opinions on this and also have <laughs> written on this. So AI and ChatGPT are two separate things. Like ChatGPT, you know, allows people to use AI, but AI is a sort of like bigger umbrella here. So let's talk about the bigger umbrella and then we can go on that specific product. So AI has been around for ages. It's been used in medicine and education and tech products for quite some time. Google has been using AI um, for a long time to help us, you know, with emails, help us, you know, browse through content, all that kind of stuff. The difference between AI in the past and AI today is that products like ChatGPT have allowed us to actually on a, you know, large sort of public mass level use AI technology to be able to do the things that big companies have been doing for ages. So for us to be able to create an essay by typing a prompt into ChatGPT, like that is basically how a lot of the content has been produced by big companies for a while. And so now it's just available to the general public. So one thing that I feel pretty adamantly about is that AI being available to the masses is actually evening the playing field. It's allowing general public to take advantage of the things that big companies have been taking advantage of for years. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, in education, we are um, having this big debate about whether these AI tools should be used in the classroom or we should allow students to use these tools to generate content. I think the con there is that you won't be able to see whether a student is writing their own essay and sort of generating the, the answers to their worksheets or generating the answers to any sort of like homework you give them. I think that's actually a positive because what that's telling us is that the world and technology is evolving to a point where kids are not going to need to do those things. Instead, they need to do what's most important, which is what we talked about earlier, was critically think. So what I would hope that we see this as is an opportunity to actually understand what are the 21st, 22nd century skills that we actually need to teach our students. Is it really for them to be able to write an essay or is it for them to be able to critically evaluate an essay and add their own voice into it? Is it really to be able to use an algorithm to create math problems or to solve math problems? Or is it to be able to understand numeracy and understand why numbers work the way that they do? Is it to be able to generate code? Or is it to be able to be more efficient and productive by letting AI generate your code and then being able to evaluate that code to see if it actually works with the app that you're building? So it's like, the world and, and, you know, these tech industries have given us a huge gift. And for us to say, you know, let's just ignore that and let's instead let, like, you know, have kids do exactly what they've been doing for a century. And when they get to the workforce, they're not going to need any of it because they're going to have access to AI tools, but that's okay. Like, I think that's like really short-sighted and, and kind of nuts to me, you know, to say that we, we, we aren't actually leveraging the tool 
that they're going to have leverage when they actually go to work. What an insightful answer. Like I, I have a whole new <laughs> perspective and view. And I love the way that you ask so many really deep questions in answer to a question, because you're right. Yeah, forget who I was talking to about this, but the idea of like AI stealing our jobs came up. And I think the general consensus was we don't think AI is going to steal our jobs because the ability for humans to generate content and unique thought is very different than what AI is generating. AI is aggregating what's available on the internet, and they're basically spitting it out for you in a smart way, which means that it is not vetted. It is likely biased based on what block of data they're using. And it is also likely you don't know if it's true or not. It could be based on false information if that false information is where they're getting their sources from. So it's not going to replace a human because a human still has to do all of the sort of like critical thinking about whether that's the right piece of information, all that goes up. But what AI will do is it will replace people who don't know how to use AI. So basically, AI won't replace our jobs, but people who know how to use AI will replace our jobs. Yeah, that's similar to a quote that I heard several years ago about coding and teaching kids to code. And it was that there were going to be two types of people in the world, either those that can code or those that knew how to be persuasive and explain and effectively communicate the things that they needed to the people that can code. And we may be moving past that now into where AI is doing the coding and there'll be those who can check AI's code and those who can get AI to code something for them. <laughs> right. But yeah, a similar idea. Thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. How can people get in touch with you? I am available on Twitter at Brady Seraf. Um, I also have a newsletter. We actually had to migrate on Substack now. It is ed3metaverse.substack.com. And the newsletter is cool because every issue is a deep dive into a different concept of emerging tech for Web3. And so you can actually get basically all the information you need um, on any type of Web3 evolution um, or category happening, um, specifically contextualized for education. It's the largest newsletter for Web3 and education. So it's, it's just a really great and it's totally free. It's a great, great resource for folks that are interested in that. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. So those are three best ways. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Freedy. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, rebel educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? 
increase achievement for all student populations, reliably meet Tier 1 standards. You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.